Hello and welcome to this episode of Faith in Politics. As always, your hosts are Bethan and Will, and we're very glad to have you with us today. So this episode, we have an interview with Baroness Hilary Armstrong, who is a member of the House of Lords, but used to be a member of Parliament for many years under Tony Blair. We're then going to move on to a conversation between Will and I about what we thought about the interview and what we thought about what Hilary had to say. And finally, we're going to conclude with a monthly musing from Jen Smith, who is the Superintendent Minister at Wesley's Chapel. However, we do have a little plan in the works that we wanted to make you aware of. So in the future, we're hoping to release some semi-regular, shorter podcasts in which um, Will and I and a guest discuss about a variety of social justice topics, everything from homelessness to drugs to the universal credit to the state of our democracy. We are completely open to suggestions on what these topics could be, so please do get in touch if you've got any ideas about things you want us to discuss and things that you'd like to hear us talk about. It's our hope that these special topic-based podcasts can be a debate and a discussion and the chance for us to really get our teeth into talking about these difficult topics. So please do get in touch if you've got any ideas for things that you'd like us to focus on. But with that, let's move on to Will introducing Hilary Armstrong. Hilary Armstrong has been a mainstay in British politics for a very long time now. She was the Labour MP for North West Durham until 2010 and has since been sitting in the House of Lords. And Bethan, she was the chief whip under Tony Blair and you were going to just explain a little bit about what that meant. So a whip in Parliament is responsible for getting members of a particular political party to vote in the way the party would like. So they attempt to get members of Parliament to vote along the party line. Hilary Armstrong, our interviewee for this podcast, was chief whip for the Labour government under Tony Blair for a number of years. So it was her job to try and get as many Labour MPs as possible to vote along the Labour Party line. Baroness Armstrong, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really kind of you. Um, Let's just start by asking a few questions about your faith. So how do you think that your faith impacts your work on a day-to-day basis? I was born into a Methodist household. Mm-hmm. My dad was a local preacher, was a circuit steward. But for me, it was just part of life. And uh, my dad was also involved in local politics. And so the two came together. And we just grew up in a household where you were expected to be involved in public life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, um, faith was part of how I understood life, how I understood what was going on in the world, uh, and how I, you know, it was the prism through which I viewed what was going on. Uh, Always knowing that um, there was a purpose, there was um, a responsibility, and that there was a gospel that helped you out along the way. And would you say that your faith has pushed you in a particular political direction or do you think they're so intertwined because of your your father's work? That... I'm sure they're very intertwined mm-hmm. and I could wax lyrical forever how I never understand how anybody is both in politics and not towards the left but not hard left because, you know, my faith would always say you have to listen to other people and you have to learn from other people as well as from your own close group. Mm. Um, But uh, I know that that, again, is my upbringing and that there are um, uh, lots of people who are not in my position politically but who would have a faith. 
And before you went into politics, you were um, a social worker, and you also spent two years in Kenya with VSO. And I spent three months in Malawi with VSO. Uh, did you? Just did you? On so, uh, ICS? On ICS, yeah. yeah. So well, I was yeah. quite thrilled to see that we both were on the, obviously, yeah. you for much yeah. longer. Yeah. Yeah. But do you think that, that, how old were you when you went out to Kenya? 21. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do you think that, obviously, that experience must have shaped you yeah. in a huge yeah. way? I always say that my two years in Kenya were the, mo- were the two years in which I learned most in my life. Um, it was long before the internet. It was when communication with home was quite difficult. Um, I was in a school up in the hills and um, I was teaching. All I had was a degree in sociology. Um, and but my mum and dad have both been teachers, um, and there I was out in a school, secondary girls secondary school, four classes, four year groups, uh, teaching GCSE mainly. I did mainly history and English. Um, I just learnt a lot about myself and about what mattered to me in the world, and about what I wanted to do. So I came back to do my postgrad year at Birmingham, training uh, in social work. And do you think that that experience of those two years shaped your view of international development and how the UK does that? And do you have any massively? Yeah. I knew I knew I wanted to be involved in changing the world, um, and that it wasn't legitimate for me to be a main actor in that in Kenya that that had to be up to the girl, the, you know, the girls I was working with rather than me and up to Kenyans rather than me. Um, and so uh, my mum was always terrified that I was going to, because I was clearly enjoying myself so much, she was terrified I was going to stay there forever. Um, uh, but no, firstly I had the place at Birmingham that they wouldn't keep for more than two years. And secondly, I knew I wanted to get involved in how you change our society. And the only way I could do that was being back in the society I'd grown up in and belonged to. So I had to come home. And that's quite a revolutionary perspective, actually, this idea of actually we can't go in and say and save these people, I say in inverted commas, because that's, that's patronising and that's not our job. But I think that international development is still struggling with that, that idea of how do you support... Yeah. um, developing economies at the same time as not being the the white saviour going in and saving them. Yeah, I think that international development actors, people involved in that, and people watching from here, get too hung up on that, that I think it is a real, and has been, and can be a real issue, um, that we think we're better, because we've come from a society where everybody gets educated and or supposedly and all of that um, uh, but on the other hand I know that you learn so much you learn that people wherever they are in the world have got very many similar characteristics because they're human beings but they also will have differences because of their upbringing and their culture and it's learning to respect those differences, but finding the commonalities that inter, 
relationships and working across boundaries and countries really teaches you. And I just found it really challenging but exciting and as I say I just learned so much and I think I'm a better person because I've done that. Um, so let's just move on a little bit to your time in government um, as right. an MP. Uh, so you were a minister in government for a number of years and um, a chief whip as well. What was your experience of the challenge of trying to get people to vote along the party line? And, and when people disagreed with the party line, what was that? I've always been very curious about the experience of the whip in that. Um, well, firstly, I was in opposition for 10 years yeah. before we got into government. So I learned a fair bit about how the place worked and uh, about what mattered and about uh, uh, what, you know, I knew very well what we wanted to do. I'd also been on the executive of the national executive of the Labour Party mm. um, in the old days when we had a women's section um, uh, so you know I was fairly involved in the whole business of policy development and yeah. all the rest of it um, I was John Smith's PPS for two years um, when he was Labour, leader of the Labour Party and Tony Blair was my neighbour in constituencies so I knew him well the Prime Minister appointed me partly because he wanted to make it clear that he didn't see whipping as a matter of bullying and intimidation. He saw it as a matter of political persuasion. Mm -hmm. And whatever anybody says about Tony Blair, he always believed that um, people at the end of the day would act in the best interest and that you needed to have the political debate and the political argument and if you got that right you'd be able to persuade them. Now then we did have to tell him several times, he's a bit naive on that, because uh, people would have other things that they would bring to their decision making and other things that were important to them than what their whip was saying to them. But uh, that was what um, he believed and um, he said, I'm appointing you because you're one of the most political people I know. So, you know, I always was looking at the wider political consequences of what was involved and um, then how you got the best out of people. Uh, that was my social work bit. Mm -hmm. And then how you made sure that you um, worked with them in a way that they would trust you and, you know, trust what you were saying. So, um, uh, I enjoyed being Chief Whip because I was working with a group of 15 whips. And that meant I could make sure that they knew what was important to the government. Mm -hmm. So I had a rule that basically I will tell you whatever I know and we will discuss all of it as long as you don't leak. But once it starts appearing in the newspapers, I know that somebody is, has lost trust in the system, mm -hmm. and then I'll have to find a different way of working with you all. Mm -hmm. But mainly, that was how I ran it. So I would make sure that whatever we discussed in Cabinet, they would hear about. 
and they would be then involved in the discussions. Uh, but we would get ministers to the WIPs meeting. So if it worked well, then the ministers would hear as they were developing their specific policy proposals how um, backbenchers were likely to react and we would, I would try and make sure that the Secretary of State was not going to be fighting on too many fronts <laughs> uh, yes. so that we would narrow down. That wasn't to say we wouldn't do things, contentious things because we wanted change. And, you know, we're all fairly conservative with a small c because an MP comes with um, people that they're accountable to that determine whether or not they keep their job. Mm. And that builds in conservatism rather than real radicalism uh, or real move to change. Mm. Or often the radicalism is, well, I can certainly when we had a big majority, I can be radical on this issue or simply not agree to it. I think they were sometimes more conservative than the government. Uh, but because it was change and would be, bring radical change, they didn't want that either. So, you know, you've just got to work on that. But I used to say, and I often think about this now because actually it wouldn't be true for me now, I used to say to them, you win because you represent the Labour Party, not because you're Joe Bloggs. And actually, the number of votes you get because of who, what wonderful individual personality you are is very different to what you get because you're representing the Labour Party. So, you know, you've always got that responsibility. So, uh, you know, much more difficult argument at the moment, but there you go. Um, uh, but I would use that argument a lot and I would also, and this was much easier when social media wasn't as big, and, you know, the internet didn't really come in until we were just about getting into government, and that changed the way government had to happen. Um, because you got 24-hour news, and that absolutely changed how you responded to events. Um, but we... We came in when social media wasn't as strong and that meant you could, I could legitimately say to groups of MPs, we will be doing all sorts of things that you've probably got in the back of your mind a bit of a fixed view about. And all I want you to do is not go on the local radio immediately with your fixed view that you've heard from two or three people in the constituency, but come and engage in the argument before you decide you're definitely on one side or the other, uh, and actually come and get involved in the debate and the discussion. And my, um, my plea was always that they, before they became really hard line, they actually got involved in some of the debates and the arguments. Um, once they had committed themselves on local radio, it was much more difficult to shift them. Yeah. Well, these days with social media, they, you know, they're doing that before they've heard the end of the sentence, let alone thought about the issue. Um, but uh, I, I do think uh, 
that that was really important. And that that it, politics is about trying to find a way forward out of different views. Mm. And if you don't consider different views, you never find the right way forward. I think it's it's really interesting to hear about your experience of of being the chief whip because I think from an outside perspective, and I don't want to generalise, but I think that it's one area of politics that is particularly mysterious yeah, to the public because it all happens behind the scenes yeah. and, and that, that's the nature yeah. of tactics. And I think that there's this, there's often, a, I imagine you've been asked this before, but there's a question of, do you ever feel, was there an experience of a sort of clash of conscience versus party versus representing a constituency? And, and I imagine that MP is something MPs deal with a lot, but because we don't hear about the whip's office... Yeah, I just wondered what you thought about that. Well, there are clearly some areas where you don't whip because it is a matter of conscience. And, you know, for me, all of the issues around women and fertility, abortion, actually euthanasia, Mm -hmm. were right in the middle of all of that. And so that wasn't whipping, but that was, if you like, the extreme example. Because half of my constituency was quite Methodist and... Protestant. The other half was very Catholic, partly because the Irish had been brought over to work in the steelworks and the the mines when they, you know, partly when uh, Churchill was up to no good and when others were um, trying to break strikes, uh, they brought people in from Ireland. So there was a part of my constituency uh, where um, there was very, very strong Catholicism. I did actually say... um, I absolutely respect your views and understand how, from your faith, you have come there. I just hope that you will respect my views, which are different, which come from my understanding of faith and my faith. Um, and that was how I handled it. That you know, we this is this is an an issue we will disagree on, um, but I you know I come to this from having thought about it a lot. But it was an issue that all the way through I was challenged on and so on. Uh, But what I then agreed was I wouldn't push it as far as I might have wanted to if I'd not represented that sort of constituency. So it does affect, you know, your constituents, the people that you're listening to, does affect how you want to vote. And as Chief Whip... And indeed, the Prime Minister recognised all of that. Um, But on most issues, there isn't that fundamental conscience issue, and you therefore need to think much more politically. And, you know, um, uh, there were were hardly any issues that gave me a problem around the politics of things. I just want to talk a little bit about your your time on the Rough Sleepers Initiative. when you, uh, when you were in government, because um, yeah, it, it, it sounds like it was great fun. It sounds like an absolutely amazing because it was quite a revolutionary piece of yeah. legislation, yeah. and um, I think that for a lot of people, homelessness because it's increasing is feels like a completely overwhelming problem. For individuals and churches in particular, what do you think they can do, and how do you think they can get involved? Because you have this okay, yeah. We, um, 
the first thing we did was set up the social exclusion unit mm -hmm. and one of the first things we asked them to look at was rough sleeping and so coming out of that we set up the rough sleepers unit and we got Louise Casey in to run it. You don't end up on the streets just because, or certainly in those days, you didn't end up on the streets just because you didn't have a property to live in. You would end up on the streets for all sorts of reasons. Breakdown, breakdown in the family, addiction, uh, all sorts of reasons. And that you couldn't just solve homelessness by making sure there were sufficient beds available for people. However, nor could you solve it if you didn't have enough beds. So that was our first thing. We had to get me, I had to be sure that every night there would be sufficient beds for people to get into if the, um, uh, the teams that we were setting up identified people who were prepared to go inside. And coming out of the uh, report from the social exclusion unit, they talked about targeted teams which would go out and talk to rough sleepers every night. So they would get to know them and we would have open shelters where they could go overnight to get help with any medical problems, to get fed, to get clothed, to get bathed. Um, and then we would get them, hopefully, into some sort of accommodation. Now, some were a long way away from being ready for individual um, flats, even if we could have got them. Uh, but we needed different sorts of hostels, too. I discovered all of this. You know, you'd have a wet hostel, which is where they were still allowed to drink. And you had a dry hostel where they weren't allowed to drink. Um, and you would, you would basically need to make sure you were getting people into the right sort of accommodation. So the other thing we did was that we bought accommodation in um, detox units so that we could detox from drugs and from drink. Because if you're on the bottom, you'll take any of that to keep going. Um, and so, and that would then lead to addiction and to poorer health and, you know, all those other consequent problems. But we, um, too often, and this was the really hard thing when we were doing rough sleeping, uh, and it was absolutely clear to me, but it was a difficult message to sell, too often people who thought they were doing good helped to pe keep people outside rather than to get them in. And we knew that we could only get them safe and give them the sort of help that they would need if we got them inside. So we used to ask churches not to do soup runs. We would ask people not to do that sort of thing. We worked with crisis to get to the time when they didn't need to do the winter shelter. We ended, we finished most winter shelters because what they did was make sure you were better fit to go back on the streets again rather than to find a long-term solution for your problems. Do you think the situation is 
has changed since then in regards to... I think some of it has. Housing is much more difficult and um, the level of rents and, uh, um, and the benefit system has made it much more difficult for people to have independent living. Mm-hmm. Um, we, would do, we did a whole lot around getting people into independent living and getting them involved in getting you know, people from hostels involved in renovating and in painting and getting ready independent living units um, uh, and all of that. Every rough sleeper I talked to knew that there was a different sort of life, but they felt that it, it, they were excluded from it for a whole raft of reasons. And my view was we have to sort those reasons so they are able to do it. So I do support the government programme to get everybody into independent living, and that you can do that as a first stop. But if you do it as a first stop, you've got to pile in lots of support. And that's my argument with the government, Mm -hmm. that they say housing first is the solution, but then they've cut the programme that went alongside housing force called supporting people. Um, That if you're going to put people into independent living, then you've got to put a lot of support around them. And that was another real problem. But if people had, if people's only friends were out on the street and you put them into independent living and didn't think about that, then it was very tempting to come out onto the street again. So we had a programme with civil servants where instead of giving people money, they would take someone to the cinema once a week or they would take them for a cup of coffee every now and again and talk with them and find out about them. So we got every department to commit to two days voluntary work a year or whatever mm-hmm. when their workforce would be able to go and do this and we organised ways of them doing that. Uh, and that's really what I would say to churches and to people who are concerned about the homeless. Mm-hmm. If anybody is on the street Whatever else has happened to them, their relationships will also have broken down. And they need to be able to, as one president of conference once said to me, you can't do anything if you can't break bread with people. And they need to be able to do that. And that doesn't mean you take over their lives or expect them to live their lives the way you live yours. But it does mean that you can talk with them and you can find out about them and you can share things like cups of coffee and um, going to the cinema. I don't give money because I know too often that reinforces the difficult behaviour that doesn't and doesn't help people get out of being on the streets. I want people to get away from living on the streets where it's very dangerous to actually being able to maybe even hold down a job. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we need to think, those of us who want to do good, need to think, what are we doing in a way that's actually going to help to change their experience? It's a bit of a a, a silly question, really, but you were um, appointed to the Lords in 2010. I was just wondering... Did anything take you by surprise when you moved from the Commons to the Lords? It was, what was that experience like? Uh, the biggest one is the Lords hates politics. And I actually think politics is very important and it's a good thing. 
because it should be seen as the way in which we work issues out and come with different perspectives which represent a very diverse and different population to find ways forward. And I'm not ashamed that that is my craft. Um, uh, and as I say, the Lords don't really like that. Do you think they view politics as something different from how the Commons views politics? Um, probably. I'm not sure the politics, the Commons has quite got it right at the moment either. Um, but I think that you know, politics itself has not developed for anything other than the right sort of reasons. Democracy is very difficult. Um, and we, you don't sort democracy out just by experts. That's not me saying experts are not important. I mean, I thought it was ridiculous to say that mm -hmm. in the referendum campaign. Of course we need to know what experts are saying. But there need to be people who are able to take from experts of different views. And experts come from a value position and develop their expertise from a value position as well. Um, but, you know, as a politician, you're there to try to work out what is worrying people and what are the areas you've got to change things on and how you do that in a way that takes as many people with you as possible and leaves the others not feeling abandoned. Back when you ran to be an MP, you ran against Theresa May and Tim Farron, mm. which is quite a unique um, <laughs> position to have been in. Um, just as a final question, did in that time when you, I presume you knew them a little um, during that campaign, what was your experience of them both? And specifically Theresa May, did you... It, it, I you never see? met her till the count. No? Which tells you a lot. She didn't turn up at any of the community events. She didn't turn up at any of the... Well, I say hustings, we don't go in for much for hustings. Um, uh, but we would, have one, we would have at least one... Uh, but there would be other community events where they would invite all the candidates um, uh, a day up in uh, the Methodist Church in the Dales had a sort of festival one year uh, and we were all invited she didn't turn up to any of those things she campaigned by going into the homes of conservative supporters where they would invite their neighbours and friends and that was her campaign so she bought a house in the constituency two years before, or 18 months before the election. Um, she sold the house six months later, and that paid for her campaign. So she had a very focused, very specific campaign and didn't bother with the rest of us. She knew she wasn't going to win the seat. She just wanted to be well thought of in the Conservative Party. Um, and uh, she knew she wasn't going to stay in the North East, let alone in northwest Durham. Tim Farron was really just out of um, university uh, and he gets upset with me now. He'll say, tell them to get rid of those photographs. Uh, I look as if I'm still in short trousers or something. And I say, but Tim, you were. <laughs> he was straight out of university and was uh, very young and enthusiastic. Um, and I quite enjoyed uh, campaigning around him.
what an interesting interview and what an interesting uh, life and career Hilary mm. Armstrong had. I, I so enjoyed listening, Bethan, and I wondered what really struck you during your conversation. Yeah, I found the whole conversation to be really interesting, um, especially considering, as you said, the, just the breadth and variety of the work that she did. Um, in particular, I found her our conversation about international development to be particularly interesting because um, we both went through sort of comparable experiences, her far, long, far, far longer than I in Malawi, but um, it it was interesting to hear it from somebody else, considering in the last few months I've become a lot more cynical when it comes to the way we do international development in this country. In in what sense? I think that it's it was it was said in the interview, but about how there's a real belief from Western countries in particular that we should go in and, and save these people and, and give them our wonderful political systems and give us the give them the way to do things the right way, I say, in inverted commas. Cause, um, but I, I think that's incredibly patronising and incredibly elitist to think that we have all the all the solutions to countries that are facing democratic or otherwise issues. And something I really enjoyed hearing about was how her time in Kenya really shaped um, her whole political mm. career and a lot of her and I think a lot of her political choices especially in regards to her her quest for equality and diversity um, and just the incredible I suppose at that time in the in when she was an MP women in parliament was rare let alone women from uh, working class families in the north of England like that kind of thing yeah one of the things that struck me was that she talked about the motivation that going and working in Kenya gave her to, to come back to this country and make a positive difference here. Mm. I guess the challenge there is that you can go to a country where the needs are significantly greater than they are here and it minimises the problems we have here to a certain extent. So I wonder, I guess from your experience too, how do you take the motivation to change your own country in your own context whilst recognising that the needs are, are very different but still important? Yeah, so I, I've had a lot of conversations about this in the last few months around the question of international aid and, and, and whether we focus on the UK or abroad. And I think that just because we have suffering in this country does not mean that we should ignore suffering further away. And I, I understand that's quite a simplistic and naive way of looking at where we spend our money. But I also think that it there is never anything wrong with having compassion for people who need it um, and the way we treat our international allies and partners and people who need our help is a direct mirror of what kind of society we live in I think because it it yes we need to support people at home absolutely and yes um, but that does not mean that people abroad should be forgotten about but in regards to your question about the the perspective that international travel makes you see. I, I don't think it does minimise anything because the because you, you see such comparisons. You see grief here and grief there or hunger here and hunger there and they are the same, just with a a change in environment and a change in people's background. And it certainly didn't for Hilary Armstrong either because she she was determined to come back here and make a meaningful difference in her own community. Mm really interesting conversation about domestic issues too wasn't there yeah I, I found what she said about homelessness to be fascinating because she worked on um as she said she worked on the on the homelessness issue for many years um when she was in government and the 
something I I I did find quite reassuring about what she said was the fact that they did they did try to speak to the homeless community in building these policies that were supposed to help them. Um, I I think it's something that maybe maybe some people from other backgrounds may disagree with. Maybe they think that we should because I have heard people say that in saying to homeless people, oh, I'm not going to get you money, I'm going to buy you a sandwich or buy you some coffee, um, you are stripping them of their own agency and you're treating them with, like, children and, like, they're not capable of looking after themselves. And I've, I've heard quite a few people say that opinion and I, I don't really know where I stand with it because, on the one hand, I really want to... Um, really want to give these people as much agency and as much self-worth as they deserve and that's they deserve all the self-worth in the world obviously but on the other other hand as Hillary said um she believes that it is when you give money you are supporting the you are um, encouraging a dependency that keeps them on the streets and it's a really nuanced conversation to have um what do you think about well I think it goes back to what we were saying about ensuring that people's voices are heard, that in the context of international development, we can go and make a difference in places like Kenya and Malawi, but we are part of the solution. We are not the solution. And the, and the same is true to, to a certain extent with homelessness as well. We need the support and insight and experiences of people who have lived experience of homelessness, that we need to work alongside those people and 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 hear what they have to say because like you say if you've never been homeless you're not as acutely aware of uh, the direct needs and if you're interested in the topic of homelessness and the discussion we're having please tune in to our um, podcast that we're bringing out in a couple of weeks in which uh, will and i are going to be having a, a longer discussion about homelessness and the the difficulties of how we deal with it and the need for compassion from all sides really the two final things that i found um interesting about this interview but firstly the fact that she doesn't think the lords likes politics very much <laughs> is that your experience of being in the lords i don't know it's it's a funny place because it doesn't operate quite under the same rules as the commons does in regard into in regards to the social rules of split party lines between tory and conservative like there's a lot of communication across the aisle there's um because these people are have been there for a really long time much longer than some mps have been around and um it's and that leads to a, a sort of feeling of familiarity for the most part um in regards to like the political nature of the lords i do think it's changing because people like hillary armstrong have been brought in who were previously mps and there is does seem to be an increasing number of ex mps who've become members of the lords and that changes the the dynamics because um the lords used to be a place where they hold the commons to account but not in a not in a modern uh, democratic way in a way of the lords not liking what the commons are doing because they are the aristocracy and that kind of thing um but now that's that shifted so much I, I did find it really interesting to hear that but also it shows how Hillary defines politics and she defines it in a very specific way well she she defended politics as an art form didn't she you yeah that there, there is a sense in which particularly um particularly in times when we are very polarized and when there is a lack of trust in our institutions there is I think a growing tendency in our society to reject 
uh, mm. institutional politics and what she said makes a lot of sense to me and and as people who engage in politics should should make sense to all of us really that that politics is an important part of decision making that what goes on in Westminster and and the compromise that has to take place and the um, bearing in mind the interests of lots of different people lots of different interests mm. is really important and I, I don't think we should be ashamed of saying that politics in all its various guises is is a way of, of making progress happen. Yeah and she used the word craft which I do think is a really dynamic way of viewing politics because a lot of people like when we interviewed Kat Smith for example she, she said that she didn't view her um, being an MP as a job, she viewed it as a service. Whereas Hilary Armstrong seems to be, she's very proud of the fact that she she is a, a craftsman when it comes to policy. And I, I do think it's that's a very, um, I use the word interesting again, but it is interesting, um, way of viewing it because politics is about building things. It's about building ideas and institutions and um, and change. And I think viewing um, change and politi- viewing politics in particular as the construction of something maybe changes the way people view it and also I think it might give a little bit more respect to politics at the moment because like as you say there's a lot of dislike for institutions and when we view policy and politics as the as a creation of something as a craft in itself maybe it, it shows the nuance that politics deserves so with that we're going to leave you with a musing from Jen Smith who is the Superintendent Minister at Wesley's Chapel and Lazy and Mission we very much hope you enjoy A couple weeks ago I was walking out of New Street train station in Birmingham I was wearing a clerical collar so I was identifiable either as a Christian or else as someone with a specially perverse fashion sense. And a man was begging and approached me for money. All very pleasant. I wasn't going to give him money, but I asked if he'd had lunch, and the pleasant came to an end as he started a loud rant. But what stuck in my mind is that he didn't abuse me, he abused God, and at full volume. Your God is for shite! Your God is nothing! What good is your God? And more. I went on my way, but I got a fairly complete version of Psalm 22 before he was finished. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these, of course, were Jesus' words on the cross. God is meant to be powerful and meant to be good. Seems to me that that man begging and Jesus both had a point. But Jesus did not help nor heal every person. He did heal and he comforted as a sign of the kingdom of God come near, a glimpse of heaven before its time, if you will. And I personally do not want to wait for heaven till I die. And then I heard about a town called Danabrog, Nebraska. They had some devastating floods a few weeks ago. Nebraska is in the middle of the United States. It's a small state, fewer than two million people, and their floods didn't even make our news but utterly destroyed, among other things, a little community art center owned by the Pawnee tribe of Native Americans and looked after by a man called Roger Welsh. Roger told how he and his buddy Mick got down to the art center on the Friday morning to find it swamped by sandbags, muck, and water. 
These are Roger's own words. He said, The inside was a total muck-drenched, water-soaked mess. I staggered back out to my truck and sat on the tailgate, completely defeated. What I saw was a disaster beyond repair. But Roger didn't stop there in his story. He went on. Within minutes, strange things began to happen. People appeared from everywhere, faces I didn't recognize. Who are these people? Groups of no-nonsense, organized, equipped men, tromping in and out of the art center, pushing open the back door, setting pumps to work. I don't know anybody with pumps. I hadn't contacted or hired anybody with pumps. I stopped one of the men and asked him who they were. He said they're just a group who'd heard about the disaster and had come to help. A church group? Well, yes, said the man, but that wasn't the point. We're just here to help. What church? It doesn't matter, said the man. We're just here to help. Roger and that Pawnee tribe still have to deal with all the rebuild. The damage is real, but he was no longer despairing. So what good is our God? Good for a glimpse of heaven and more than one. Good for new life out of death. The world is still as it ever was, but when Christian people work, we still see a sign of the same kingdom Jesus talked about. One town at a time, Dannebrog, Birmingham, my town. Glimpses of heaven, resurrection days. Happy Easter, everyone. That's all we have time for on this episode of Faith in Politics. We hope you've enjoyed listening and do you keep in touch with us. Let us know what you think of a slightly different format. Let us know what kind of issues you'd like us to explore together. You can get in touch with us on social media. And as always, thank you so much for joining us and we hope that you'll tune in a couple of weeks.